touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland and joining me once again, despite his incredibly busy schedule, possibly the busiest man at HowStuffWorks.com, Ben Bowen. Oh gosh, hey, uh, thank you for having me back and... Uh, Good to talk to everyone here in Tech Stuff. I do have to say I am at best the second or third busiest man. Uh, the dubious privilege of the most busy probably goes to our super producer, Noel Brown. Noel's, Noel's pretty darn busy. Matt Frederick, also really busy. <laughs> That's true. There's, yeah. there's probably maybe five or six people that you could all claim are the most busy person at How Stuff Works, and they would themselves be too exhausted to argue the point. <laughs> but uh, Ben, of course, one of the many shows that you are host of is Car Stuff. And uh, when I asked you if you would be interested to come back on to Tech Stuff and you didn't have the heart to tell me no, I said, what would you like to talk about? And you came up with a ton of different suggestions, which really just means that you're eventually going to cover all of them. (laughs) But today we're specifically looking at one of the ones I thought was the most interesting, hacking a car. And the reason why I think it's really fitting that we do this is recently I did an episode with Shannon Morse, and she is one of the hosts of Hack 5. And she talks a lot about hacking and coding, uh, including hacking electronics. And And she said one of the things she really wanted to get more into was the idea of hacking vehicles. And uh, and so I thought, well, this is the perfect opportunity for us to expand on this because we introduced it with Shannon's interview, and now we can really dive into it and look into it. Um, now, the fact that we're talking about this means that we have to uh, confront some kind of mythical versions of the car hacking uh, mm-hmm. lifestyle, because we, we've all seen depictions of this in various like spy movies or television series. So, Ben, uh, I know that we've got these great notes written down. I want to hear you actually read out the opening paragraph. <laughs> Uh, uh, all right. In, in your most dramatic kind of approach. Okay. The old in a world. Yes. Exactly. Okay. All right. Now, when, to be fair, Jonathan, I, I, when I was writing that, it hit me halfway through that I wondered who would, which of us would this would fall to. Okay. So let's set the scene. Imagine that you're in an action film driving on a curving road along the side of a cliff and suddenly the brakes don't work. The accelerator jams and as you careen over the side of the road, a voice comes on over your radio saying, You've made a powerful enemy, old friend. The familiar voice over your Bluetooth connection is no doubt making a pun just as your vehicle now turned into a death trap hurdles into the abyss. This being a film, the car instantly explodes. Have a nice trip. There we go. That's not quite right, but you know that's. I I am the master of the almost but not quite appropriate pun. Um. So yeah, the, this is this is something that I, I have actually seen in movies where you know the the old version of this would just be someone's cut the brake line, right? Mm-hmm. But now, cars are way more complicated than they used to be. And so the question is, could this actually happen? Could someone take control of your car this way? And it's a little complicated. Yeah. Uh, it, the, the answer kind of comes out to maybe. Yeah. What do you mean by hacking? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So 
you've got a great point in the notes. Cars are increasingly computerized. There are more and more electronic systems within cars today. So they used to be purely mechanical. Sure. Right. Yeah. You, you had an engine that you had a transmission that would transmit the, the, the reciprocal power of the engine into rotational force for the, 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 the tires. Mm-hmm. You had brakes. You had steering. It wasn't even power steering back in the day. These were all, you know, mechanical systems. Right down to the windows. Yeah. So you didn't have any sort of electronics. But that's not the case anymore. Yeah. No, sir. Now a car is more like a series of interconnected digital networks. And, and they could have dozens of computers talking to each other. Oh, we call these embedded systems often. And here's the thing, Jonathan, they're proprietary. So that means that these systems are not just plug and play things you could stick into any car, a right. GM car and, you know, a Toyota would have a different approach. Um, they're also not that smart. Yeah, as it turns out, the proprietary thing is both a good thing and a bad thing. Now, yep. often I say I don't like the proprietary approach because I want to have the choice as a consumer to be able to put together a system however I like. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be I don't want to be um, you know beholden to one company's approach, which is why I love Apple's design. Don't get me wrong, but I'm not an <laughs> Apple guy because Apple products tend to only work with other Apple products, or they they in their best implementation, they work with Apple products. And if you try and mix and match stuff, things start to fall apart pretty quickly. And I like to have more of an open approach. However, that being said, the experience I might have with that open approach may never get to as good a one as I would have if I just broke down and bought all the Apple stuff. And stayed in the sandbox, huh? But the other side of that is that with the proprietary approach, and we'll go into this more later in the podcast, yeah. uh, it means that if you're trying to exploit the system, you can't take a one one approach, right? Mm-hmm. One size does not fit all. It's not a cookie cutter type thing. Absolutely. Uh, and it's not, I guess what we're saying is that it's not as easy to, you know, hack uh, multiple cars or control a mu- multiple cars. Though we'll see a couple exceptions to that rule as it is to, you know, uh, botnet a bunch of computers. Right, right. You can't. You can't build a virus that is going to affect the entire fleet of cars out there, but you could write a virus that exploits a particular vulnerability in an operating system, and then any computer using that unpatched version of the operating system mm-hmm. would become vulnerable to that attack. So it is a little different. It's not the same as uh, hacking a computer. And keep in mind, hacking a computer is not the same as what you'll see in a movie. Isn't it? It's not like uh, it's not like that 90s film hackers. We can't just reroute the encryption or, or or the or all the different versions of hacking where they show it as a, a character. Like suddenly you're an avatar navigating through a maze and you actually encounter like floating skull and crossbones. And oh, no, that's the that's the firewall. I need to turn around and. That's not what hacking is like. It made so many people's first computer experience uh, underwhelming. I've got, oh, I've got something that's a little bit of a sidebar. Do you know that show, The Strain? Yes. Okay, have you yes. watched any of it? I haven't. It's on my list of things to watch, but I haven't watched it yet. All right. This is the one with the virus that goes through the eye, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's sort of a uh, 
Parasite yeah, adaptations okay. and parasite science. But this is not really a spoiler because it's a side note here. One of, and I mean, I say this with love because I've watched the show. One of the dumbest things that happens yes. in that show is that there's a, uh, you know, there's a hacker lady character yeah. and she's, she's crazy and this, this billionaire finds her and he wants to pay her an exorbitant amount of money to get this slow down the internet. It's mm. like, uh, she's, he says, we need you to slow down the internet. And she just goes, how slow? <laughs> <laughs> like she has the dial to the internet on her computer. Like, well, let me just crank this down to three. And now now everyone's working on a three speed as opposed to 11. It's exactly that. And that doesn't even work in a car. Uh, just for some perspective, for people who uh, want to know more examples, uh, you've got a pretty good, pretty comprehensive list here of the various different things likely run by a computer in the average person's car today. Yeah, you've got a lot of different systems that are now electronic and no longer mechanical. So here's just some that could be connected to a microprocessor. Uh, the engine ignition, fuel injection, emissions controls, that's a big one, braking, steering, transmission controls, collision avoidance systems, they definitely have microprocessors, heating and air conditioning systems, navigation systems, communication systems, entertainment systems, Safety and security systems. So that would include things like a safety system might be anything from, again, collision avoidance, that kind of thing, to and security systems would be things like a car alarm. Mm -hmm. um, or the safety system might be the way a dealership is able to track down a vehicle. Let's say that you have uh, reported a stolen vehicle. Some dealerships, some uh, car companies include systems that allow wherever you bought the car from to be able to find where that particular receiver is. Mm -hmm. Well, that receiver has to be able to connect and communicate through a system somehow. So that's a, you know, anytime you talk about a system that communicates to the outside world, that's a potential invasion vector. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. That's where someone can get at your, your car because a lot of car, like a lot of cars, we just look at them as closed systems and a lot of them are, a lot sure. of them are totally closed off, which means that your, your invasion uh, vectors are limited, and we'll talk more about that in a bit. But at any rate, your typical car today has probably around 100 microprocessors in it, maybe more. And within the next few years, that's going to double. We're going to see twice. In fact, I, I am I imagine a lot of the cars that are coming out this year, mm -hmm. especially the high-end luxury cars that tend to feature these systems before we see it rolled out to the general fleet, they probably already are around 200 microprocessors. Uh, in fact, this this figure of 100 microprocessors was in an article from 2011. So oh, it may man. even be that your average car has 200 by now <laughs> um, and and five miles of wiring to connect all those systems are in a car. Yeah, that's one of my favorite uh, statistics that you pulled up. And and before we go any further now, we we already, I think, did an OK job of saying that. Uh, the, uh, what you see in Hollywood, some what you see in real life. Yeah. Uh, but we should also say that uh, hacking in the, in the way that we're using it, which is a little bit more colloquial, hacking is not necessarily something that a thief would do to your car. Right. It's not necessarily an invasive technique to take over a system. Right. Hacking just means that you are using uh, techniques to get a specific result using a system that wasn't necessarily intended to get that result. So hackers can be of all shapes and sizes. They can have all different types of interests. It doesn't have to be a computer. You know, we've seen life hacks, this idea of you want to achieve a specific outcome. Here's a cool way to do that. Mm. They're not always the most elegant approach. 
It's not always the cleanest or the the simplest, but sometimes it's it's one that just works. That's the goal of the hacker is to find a way of making that outcome happen. Mm -hmm. So early computer programmers were called hackers because they were hacking together code to make something happen. And sure, they might have used, you know, twice as many lines of code than were what was strictly necessary, but they were just trying to get it done in the time. Mm -hmm. Well, hackers with cars might be hacking their own vehicles. It might not be in order to try and sabotage a vehicle, but rather to change the parameters uh, that it can work within. So you might want to, I don't know, make remove any limiting factors. Sure, like and, governors. Yeah, something. governors, things like that, to, to make your car um, work with greater horsepower or more torque or mm-hmm. move at a faster top speed. And there are a lot of systems that are in place to limit that kind of thing so that right. a car works within... Safety parameters, right? Sure. Because yeah. once you get beyond that, you start to really test the the strength of the vehicle. It may be that it can't hold up to greater speeds over a certain amount. And usually what you'll get is a car company that'll dial that back to within a safe limit and say, all right, well, here's the maximum. Mm-hmm. And it's well below that that real top limit, which is the same sort of thing we see with overclocking with microprocessors. Yep, yep. Hole in one. So... There are some car hackers who will go in and they'll reflash the engine control unit or electronic control unit. That's mm. ECU. And they'll go in and they'll reflash it, which means that they will essentially start with a clean slate and and um, change a few of the parameters. Can be really dangerous, by the way. Yeah, we're not we are officially not recommending that you do this, although it is interesting um, and in some ways, I think this is a very positive note. Statistically speaking, the person most likely to hack your car is you. Yeah, that is the best news. But it, it can be really dangerous or at the very least, it can damage your vehicle yeah, to sure. the point where you can't drive it anymore. Or you might do something where you're you're tweaking something in the ECU thinking that you're going to squeeze out another 15 miles per hour out of the top speed. But it turns out instead what you've done is have it honking forever <laughs> and you can't stop it. Uh, and, you know, this sort of stuff uh, obviously voids warranties. Clearly, um, yeah. You know, there are a lot of issues that if if things go wrong, you could be stuck with the bill, period. There mm-hmm. might not be any help for you. Uh, you might not be able to get it covered by insurance or warranties, that kind of thing. And you'll have to walk somewhere to pay yeah, that bill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I've seen pictures of stuff like um, uh, like the 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 pistons that you would find within an engine, just they're unrecognizable because mm-hmm. they had been put through such speed and force that it beat them out of the, the shape that they were supposed to be in. So bad things can happen if you don't know what you're doing. And very few people really know what they're doing. And in order to get it to work, you often have to do stuff like tweak the fuel injection system, which right. is, you know, if you don't know your physics and chemistry, you're not going to get that mix right. Mm-hmm. And you could just end up making your vehicle undrivable. And there are people, of course, especially in the world of racing, who professionally tune cars and to a degree hack them. Sure. But keep in mind, these are cars that are already built for racing. They have a much lower lifespan and they're only built to do one thing. Yeah. And, you know, the the real issue we're having here is something that's kind of, you know, we didn't really mention this in the notes, but something that we see throughout the industry, which is that cars are getting so complicated with all these different electronic systems Mm -hmm. that even people who are experienced mechanics can encounter issues because 
you've got all these different proprietary systems. Sure. You've got all these uh, different electronic subsystems within the car. And uh, you can't necessarily be an expert on everything all the time. So it, you know, it's it's tough for everybody out there. Like, it's tough for professional mechanics now, too. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm glad you made it because uh, this maybe is a little bit of a tangent for us, but it is very important to note uh, that just as you said, mechanics, especially mechanics who came up under what I guess we would call the old school ways now, uh, are increasingly finding that a, a higher number of repairs require shipping to the manufacturer, yeah. which is not what you want to hear when your car's broken down. Yeah, if you're looking at any vehicle post-1996, it's got a lot of electronic systems in it. That's true, and some of those are mandated, right? Yes, yeah. In fact, that was one of the reasons why the cars are the way they are is because uh, you had states like California that had to put in emissions controls. I mean, we've all seen the pictures of Los Angeles and the haze, the pollution that mm-hmm. hangs above the city. And so there were there was a lot of incentive to try and clean up the air as much as possible. And part of that was controlling the emissions made from vehicles. Mm-hmm. So uh, emission control systems and emission detection systems became an important part of, of vehicles within that state. And once people started to develop onboard diagnostic systems to make sure that a car was working within the right legal limits of emissions, that rolled out to the rest of the United States and became a requirement for all vehicles. And so a lot of these were originally electronic systems that were designed to make a particular model of car safer than previous models. Yeah. But because of their proved efficacy... They are now required in all vehicles, not just, you know, the ones that debuted it. Mm-hmm. So uh, Scott and I talked about how that is also driving the average price of cars up. Ah, yes. Because, Scott Benjamin. Yeah. Yeah. They, those those cars are getting more and more sophisticated. They also get more and more expensive. But it also means that, again, we have more and more systems that could potentially be exploited. And uh, by potentially, we mean that your car could be potentially exploited. Uh, by exploited, we mean that there is proven research, peer-reviewed. These guys went to DEFCON. They're not just they're not just you know like you and me, Jonathan, hanging out in a garage and saying, "Oh, let's see what we can do." Yeah, they're not they're not theorizing. Right. They they have actually done some hacking to see how cars can be vulnerable to different types of attacks. Uh, and you've got a pair of hackers that uh, that I think you want to talk about, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, these would be Miller and Valasek. They're two of the biggest names in the world of car hacking research. Charlie Miller, Chris Valasek. I, I want to set this up for uh, a quotation that maybe you could read. Um, Miller is a or was a, at one time a security engineer at Twitter. Valasek, director of security intelligence at a Seattle consultancy called IOActive. Or IOA Tiv. <laughs> but they, uh, they received an $80,000 grant from DARPA to research security vulnerabilities of cars. And I think in, in this context, it's helpful to think of them as white hat hackers. Yeah. They were specifically hired to say, can you, can you breach this car's systems and exploit it? Because we need to know if that's a possibility and we need to know where the vulnerabilities are. That's definitely a white hat approach. Yeah. So we've got we've got a quotation from a summary of their um, groundbreaking 2011 paper that I, if could sure. I ask you to do the honors? absolutely here we go. I, I made you do the first one. So. <laughs> Previous research has shown that it is possible for an attacker to get remote code execution on the electronic control units, ECU, 
in automotive vehicles via various interfaces such as the Bluetooth interface and the telematics unit. This paper aims to expand on the ideas of what such an attacker could do to influence the behavior of the vehicle after that type of attack. So here's what they did. I know that's in some dry language, but they're talking about some frankly frightening stuff. Yeah. They essentially, they built these software tools to uh, enable a Mac laptop, going back to Apple. Uh, and, and also back to Independence Day. Yeah. Uh, yes. If you're going to exploit a technology, you need to use an Apple computer in order to insert the code, right? Yeah, just reroute the encryptions. Uh, that's a little callback for everybody who listened to our <laughs> previous series. Uh, yeah, they, they plugged into the diagnostic port of the car, which, again, um, it, there's an overwhelming chance, unless you're driving a classic car, that you have one of these. Yeah, and, and this was one of those things that was mandated by law because it allows... Uh, a very quick assessment of how a vehicle is performing. Yeah, and they they found uh, because they are white hat, they they presented their software and their findings. They went public and transparent with it at the 2013 DEFCON, and they wanted other researchers in on this game to help find and fix the security flaws before uh, hackers or you know incredibly sophisticated car thieves got to them. Yeah, we uh, usually like when we talk about malicious hackers, we often use the the term crackers as in people who crack the security mm-hmm. in order to exploit it. Ah, so, that, that's all right. You're putting me on the game here. Oh, well, you know, it's yeah. just one of those one of those terms I I rarely bust out, but that is in <laughs> fact one cuz cuz hacker does not necessarily mean malicious, right? Exactly. But it often is portrayed such in the media. It's a it's a cuz it's a shorthand way of saying mm-hmm. this person who wants to get access to your stuff. This is crucial. This kind of information, it's crucial because uh, more and more cars have onboard Wi-Fi networks, uh, each of which is, to a degree, proprietary. You know, uh, General Motors has OnStar, Toyota's got Safety Connect, etc. Um, but, of course, they are not the only researchers in the game. And their methods, which we'll talk about in a little bit, are not the only options. Because, if you'll recall, earlier, ladies and gentlemen, we talked about an exception to the rule of multi-car hacking. Yeah, uh, so car dealerships. You know, I mentioned the idea of having those systems in place for you to be able to track down a vehicle in case it's been stolen. Mm-hmm. And this is becoming a standard feature in a lot of automobiles these days. Uh, in 2010, Omar Ramos Lopez, who was a, a former employee of an Austin car dealership, used the vehicle tracking system to get revenge. This is where we see a well-intentioned system, which is you know, designed to do one thing very well, can sometimes be put to misuse by someone who has ulterior motives. Reminds me of a lot of discussions I've had about the NSA. Like, <laughs> right. Your 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 intentions may have been pure, but you've built a tool that humans use, and humans have some pretty base desires occasionally. So the system allowed the dealer to send wireless reminders about delinquent payments to customers and also allowed this particular ex-employee to remotely hack the vehicles of nearly 100 people, which uh, the result of the hack was that their car horn started honking uncontrollably and disabled their the ignitions of their cars. Which, uh. So not only was their car honking and honking and honking, they could not, you know, turn on the car wow and that's that's weird because ordinarily those functions which are in that existing hardware are uh 
I imagine for people who are not paying their car payment or their leasing or something. Or they've had their car stolen, and that mm -hmm. way the car suddenly becomes inoperable, and it's making a nuisance of itself. Two things that you want if you have, say, police out there looking for your stolen mm -hmm. vehicle. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, but Omar managed to hack the system. Of course, he did later get arrested, ladies and gentlemen, which is how we know his name. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, Clearly, it was a, a an ultimately unsuccessful attempt because he right. didn't get away clean. It was not a successful exploit. Now, in many of the cases that you'll hear mentioned about car hacking in the news, there's this very important caveat. The hackers needed some sort of physical access to the vehicle through its OBD, the onboard diagnostic port. And, you know, that, that makes sense. So... Valasek and Miller plugging in the, the thing directly to yeah. a car or uh, Omar using pre-existing hardware on the car. So, right. So they have that access and they have to have that to get there, right? Well, mostly. OK, so generally speaking, that is the surest way to, to be able to get access to a car's subsystems is being able to plug physically into that car, which means they already have to have physical access to the inside of your car. And, uh, not to, not to do a spoiler, but there's a point I think that you make later in the notes that is, it behooves us to bring up now. If you're gonna go through that much trouble, there's probably other stuff you can do to the person you're aiming at. <laughs> right. That, yeah. that, you know, you can save a lot of time and effort and not go to the trouble of getting access to their vehicle, plugging in secretly without them knowing about it. Mm. Yes, I'm being redundant there. Then uh, inserting whatever malicious code you have and, and changing all of their systems around. And then, uh, leaving, that's a lot of, that's a lot of trouble. Whereas you could do something like, I don't know, disable their, their brake system, like physically disable their brake system. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's certainly, there's uh, the possibility and the plausibility are two different things. But then the idea of getting at a car without physically plugging in uh -huh. is something that people are exploring because as you mentioned, a lot of these have these these various communication systems that connect to the outside world. That's a possible point of intrusion. Now, it all depends on whether or not that system is connected to any other systems in the car. Yep. Now, if you're talking about a safety system, it probably is, at least on a diagnostic level, because it has to be able to send an alert to whatever agency is in charge of responding to those, mm -hmm. right? So if you have a vehicle that has a safety system in it that can detect something wrong with your vehicle, send that message off to a security firm, whatever it may be, like OnStar is a great example. Right. And then OnStar responds. Well, that 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 connection, that wireless communication is a possible point of intrusion. And since it can at least diagnose problems in mm. systems, it may give people the opportunity to mess with those systems. Yeah. Uh, but this is a big, these are a lot of big ifs, right? These, these are a lot of big ifs, but the research is there, you know? Yeah, so... Uh, you have the research from the University of California and the University of Washington hacking the controller area network, or CAN, mm -hmm. of an unnamed late model car. And they were able to put in malicious commands through the car's satellite radio. So I assume they made the person listen to Robin Thicke or something, right? Yeah, so that was, was that was part of it. I guess not. It's 2011. Blurred Lines wasn't around yet, but... No, uh, no, it wasn't Robin Thicke's song. It was just him oh, talking just Robin about Thicke, stuff. Just Robin Thicke. Yeah. That, that's something that no one should have to endure, <laughs> except possibly Alan Thicke. But, uh, yeah, the, so the idea was that they could uh, sneak malicious commands, and actually it says satellite radio, Wi-Fi, or a CD containing the virus, which is interesting. I never would have thought that a sound system 
Mm-hmm. You know, presumably, that's what you're putting the CD into, or at least right. an entertainment system that that would have any kind of access to other important systems within the car. But it may very well be that it's connected to that same network. Right. And then once you have access to the network, you can start to try and get access to some of the more critical subsystems, things like power steering, which would be, you know, catastrophic, obviously. Yes. Potentially so. Yeah. One of the uh, one of the professors involved in some of these tests, a guy named Stefan Savage, uh, said that these wireless hacks still remain possible, specifically said the vulnerabilities that we found were the kind that existed on PCs in the early to mid 1900s when computers were first getting on the Internet. And uh, here's, I think, the the strangest example that I have read so far. Yeah. And and maybe maybe readers and maybe you have a different one. Uh, What if you could take a car's tire pressure monitoring system and use that as a way to monitor the movements of a car. To me, that sounds like a sci-fi writer was running out of ideas in season, uh, you know, six of uh, an anthology show. Yeah, like 24 or something. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they said, let's make this next season six. But uh, the researchers from Rutgers University and University of South Carolina uh, demonstrated in the possibility of this. That's pretty incredible and it's and they use a wireless sing, signal sent out by the pressure monitoring system to to i guess uh trace pings almost you know wow yeah well let's talk about some of the other things that you could do pr- potentially if you were able to access a car's computer systems lay it Keep, on me keeping in mind that uh, most of these again are probably due to uh physically connecting with the vehicle yeah and, all, all inserting these. yeah as opposed to you know, it's not like someone whipped out a giant remote control and suddenly <laughs> suddenly they, they make your car veer left. But they could. Uh, we've mentioned honking the horn. Uh, that's certainly possible. Uh, there was one uh, about a Toyota Prius and being able to slam its brakes at, when the, the car is already traveling at high speed, thus uh, potentially leading to a, a situation where the car gets out of control. Mm-hmm. At the very least, it's going to lead to a situation where the car is going to become a hazard to anyone who's traveling at that same rate of speed behind them. Yeah. Uh, then there's uh, the killing the power steering. Anyone who's ever driven a vehicle without power steering or where the power steering has suddenly become uh, inactive mm-hmm. knows that that is no joke. I mean, yeah. the, you really don't know how much that power steering helps you until you try and drive a vehicle that does not have it. Um Spoofing the GPS. So this would be a way of making a car appear someplace where it's not. I actually used a GPS spoofer for a while. What? Yeah. Um, I'm not proud of it. It was for a really <laughs> dumb reason, too. You want to know what it was? Yes. Okay. So when I say dumb reason, I'm not saying anything like, um, like illicit okay. or, or, or like salacious. Sure. I was using a GPS spoofer because I had downloaded an app. That was a promotional app for a popular science fiction film. And part of it would give you achievements for checking in at certain physical locations. And some of those physical locations, because of the particular film I'm talking about, were located in San Francisco. I am not in San Francisco. That's true. But I wanted those achievements. (laughs) And so by spoofing my GPS, I could make it appear as if I were in San Francisco at the specific locations, check into those locations and get the achievements. It was Star Trek. Oh, Star Trek. Yeah, it was the J.J. Abrams Star Trek reboot. Oh. It was actually Star Trek Into Darkness, to be specific. 
Uh, I think I finally achieved the rank of captain. My wife is an admiral, so that'll tell you. <laughs> is, isn't that against Star Trek code? That's Starfleet regulations. Yeah. Look, look, if Captain Kirk can cheat during the Kobayashi Maru, <laughs> then I can cheat in the check-ins for it. But anyway, spoofing GPS is, yeah. that's a serious issue because let's say, that the GPS is tied to, again, the car monitoring system. Right. If if the car appears to be someplace that it's not, then any sort of response, physical response sent from, say, OnStar again, sure. is going to go to the wrong location. So yeah. that's a real thing. Then there's uh, falsifying speedometers and odometers. Uh, I mean, it's falsifying an odometer. that You could see lots of reasons. Oh, why yeah. Do oh, that. yeah. Um, there's violently making the the vehicle just jerk around wow. while it's traveling. Yeah. Not good. Um, and also they, they demonstrated that they could exploit both a Toyota and a Ford's self-parking functions to hijack a vehicle steering, essentially turning it into a primitive kind of remote controlled vehicle. Yeah. And you, you can sort of see where that would come into play because obviously if you have a parallel parking automated system, it has to be able to control the steering and braking of the mm-hmm. vehicle in order for that to work. So you just give it a new set of instructions. Yeah. Now, again, this is all stuff that, you know, you would have to have physical access to the vehicle first before you could have introduced these problems. So if you're really careful with the way your, you know, your vehicle is like your your vehicle is secure, then you don't need to worry about this so much. But yeah, that's that's a good point. And before this becomes too, uh, too scary for anybody, let's also keep in mind that when uh, Miller and Valsak were demonstrating these things, uh, especially to a couple of journalists, one of the guys was literally sitting in the car with his laptop plugged in, yeah. running the code. So uh, I guess if you see someone you don't know in the backseat of your car. <laughs> yeah. There might be some other questions you come up with before you actually get the car in motion. Right. right? Yeah. So it's not it's the the odds of you hopping into your 2010 Prius or Escape and then finding that the car is completely not under your control are very, very very low. Yeah. The the point that these hackers were making was that the vulnerabilities existed. Right. And that the vulnerabilities could be addressed and sealed up so that it would no longer be a point of entry for a hacker. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, they didn't need for the demonstration to be practical. They just needed to show that, look, with enough work, you can do this. And presumably, if you're really determined, you could create say, a module that plugs into the onboard diagnostic system and has a wireless communication with a laptop. Yep. And then I don't have to be in the backseat anymore because I can just send those uh, the communication straight through. But not that anyone's developed that, but rather that we need to address the vulnerabilities that would make such a thing possible. Yeah, exactly. And again, just underlining that uh, if something is controlled by a computer in your car, then another computer can be com- come involved and and anything from your power windows to your braking that function could be hacked we talked a little bit already about the um the evolution of the ECU right right yeah the whole point about these are these were systems made to make either cars safer or mm-hmm. uh to have a a smaller environmental impact and that these were things that because they were because of their benefits they ended up being uh required mm-hmm. you know and you've got some uh you've got some great notes here about the CAN bus. Ultimately what what Miller and Valisek are doing is they're uh analyzing the CAN bus and yeah. they're they're using that kind of like their skeleton key or their highway. Yeah, you can think of a uh, the CAN 
bus as sort of its own little miniature network. Uh, so think of it like, a, you know, think of the, the Internet in microcosm, except it's all within the context of a car. And the CAN is what pretty much allows various uh, subsystems to be interconnected. And it can interconnect up to 40 different systems, 40 different devices anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, information travels at about one megabit per second, which is, you know, co- compared to broadband speeds. Well, in the United States, broadband <laughs> is defined as four megabits per second. So it's really not that far behind. Right. But it's it's uh, more than sufficient for the kind of data that the vehicle tends to work in because it's not, you know, it's not concerned with everything. It's concerned with very specific systems like fuel injection or a speedometer or that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, definitely sufficient for that kind of thing. But that is, again, uh, you know, anytime you have a system where data is traveling around, then there's the potential of exploiting it if you can get that point of entry. So when they were at DEF CON, they explained yeah. this sort of stuff. They also said that, uh, Part of their process was to get these proprietary messages. One of the most base ways to think of it is speaking the language of the car, right? Yeah, yeah. And so by learning some of those lang- uh, those phrases, uh, in this tortured analogy I painted myself into, uh, they can replay these on a device that's hooked up to the diagnostic connector port, and then they can uh, influence the braking and the steering, and then. As you said, uh, they can also modify the existing firmware so that they can still have this signal interplay without having a guy in the back. Um, but to me, it's interesting that this is not more of a big deal externally with companies. You know, this seems like yeah. the kind of thing that could easily become alarmist. And I'm, I'm surprised that there hasn't already been more uh, examination of it. I think part of it is that we're still in the early days, right? Right now, it's in the hacker culture, it's something that's uh, being discussed. And in car culture, where you have people who mod and tune their own cars, it's being discussed. But Mm -hmm. usually from the perspective of how can I make my car do something it was not meant to do. Yeah, without how can I overclock without falling apart? Right, right. Uh, From the hacker culture, it's more about what are the potential vulnerabilities and either how can I exploit them or how can I prevent them from being exploited? Companies, I mean, bringing attention to it is probably not something that most companies want to do. They want <laughs> right. to sell cars. But a lot of them are definitely responding by saying, this is something we really uh, are concerned about. We want to make sure that our, our cars are as, as safe as possible. We take it very seriously. We want to make sure that uh, it it's not a, a trivial task to tap into one of these cars. So, yeah, exactly. And the statements of various companies, of course, Ford says to take it very seriously and other car companies are saying that there is a differentiation that needs to be made between hacking a car with physical access versus remote hacking. Yeah. And uh, for many car companies, the focus is on preventing that kind of exploitation remotely. Well, yeah, because that's the one that is more likely to like if it's a possible, that's the more likely vector mm-hmm. because it's the one that requires less work on the part of the person who's trying to get access to the car. Sure. You know, if if I find out the only way that I'm going to be able to sabotage my enemy's vehicle is if I get physical access to the inside of the vehicle and then I have to be there for a couple of hours while I reflash the engine control unit. That's not really that 
uh, attractive to me. I mean, do you have any enemies that like? Not anymore. I, I would. Ha- <laughs> I was gonna say I would wingman you on that one, <laughs> but that would take all afternoon. Well, see, Ben, what I'm telling you now is that I didn't use this approach because I'm much more efficient. But at <laughs> any rate, uh, the yeah, if you could get access remotely, then clearly that would be a big draw for potential mm. hackers. Now they also point out that. It's usually a one-on-one kind of thing. The, the approaches we've seen so far, with the exception of exploiting the dealership system, which, you know, it, it, again, then you have to get access to the dealership system, which, right. is, which is even more difficult, mm. at least presumably, than an individual vehicle. Uh, but because these are one-on-one attacks, you would have to be targeted specifically. Now, if you own a really high-end luxury vehicle, that might happen. Yeah, right? yeah, but the likelihood of having a vehicle stolen if it's a high-end luxury vehicle has already increased. Yeah, uh, right. In, there, there are multiple, there are multiple avenues that people will go through in order to get hold of that vehicle. Right. Some of them might involve electronic hijacking. Some of them might involve just getting physical access to the car and hot wiring the thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's you know that's that's a risk you take with a high-end luxury vehicle, and you usually will take, uh, uh, you know. You'll take steps to prevent that from happening. Hopefully. Yeah, you know, like possibly hiring a very large person to stand <laughs> right next to the vehicle and uh, and discourage people from getting too close. But, um, yeah, because we're not getting this kind of car communication where the cars are constantly a part of the larger Internet. Yeah. Uh, then it's it's fairly it's fairly safe right now from the remote a- attacks. Uh, as cars get more and more internet capable and internet connected, then you have to sit there and say, all right, well, how is the car interacting with the internet? Can that be identified from an external source? If it can be identified, can it also be exploited? Mm-hmm. And that's, those are the questions that are really going to be important to answer. And I suspect we're going to see more and more cars get this sort of internet connection. I mean, we're already seeing it with entertainment systems again. Yeah. Right. So you, you have cars that have, uh, entertainment systems that do connect either to the internet via satellite or through the cellular network, you know, however it may be, uh, that's a, again, a, a potential point of entry, uh, assuming that the subsystem is designed to communicate with other systems. One way to prevent this is to say, all right, well, which systems need to talk to each other and which ones totally don't need to talk to anything? <laughs> and let's make sure that those are boxed away so that if someone gets access to them, the worst you're going to get is they're making me listen to, I don't know, modern country. That would drive me crazy. Yeah. We, you know, we could do an entirely different show on modern country versus classic country. Yeah. OK. Like <laughs> Hank Williams, senior, brilliant man. All sure, right? Yeah. But, but you know, okay. Well, yeah, we you're go. right. You're right. We could. I'm, I'm not going to go down so that road. I have I have um, some questions for you as our resident uh, tech expert. Okay. Um, and to ask to set up one of these questions first, I have a I have a short little anecdote here. In 2013, as reported by the Guardian, there was a scientist named Flavio Garcia, which is a great name, which is a wonderful name. I I at first assumed he was a name scientist, but he <laughs> uh, he uh, had an academic paper that he had written with several colleagues revealing the secret codes used to start luxury cars, Audis, Bentleys, and so on. And the judge in the case, uh, there was, there was a suppression case, right? Right. uh, To suppress the paper from being published. Right. Some car companies wanted to suppress it. And the judge ultimately ruled that it should be suppressed. Uh, I think 
specifically, this was the parent company of Volkswagen. And the idea here was um, the the idea was that the scientists, by publishing this paper, were endangering, you know, hundreds of thousands of car owners minimum. Right. Right. And uh, and, and even even if you don't consider it a danger immediately, let's say that it inspires the companies to do a recall or that uh, all those customers go out to have this system changed. That's a real monetary impact, either to the the owners or the car companies or both. To both, most likely. Yeah. And uh, what they found in the course of the investigation was that Garcia's team was deriving these codes by, by cracking the algorithms there. They used uh, complex mathematical models to check the software behind the code, but... Here's the thing, man. Yeah. The, the code, they, the, the process they were using and their conclusions, stuff like that, uh, were in some pieces they were available in, since 2009. So what my question is with this, with this dilemma, and I think yeah. it is, um, where, where would you fall? Like professionally, what's the idea here? Is this a case where, is this a case where security trumps transparency or? Uh, I think so. I think my my general philosophy in these matters, and this goes to all sorts of all, all types of white hat hacking. My general philosophy is that it is it the responsible thing to do is to alert whatever governing body, whether that's a, a country, a company, mm-hmm. uh, some some specific programmers, whatever, whoever's responsible for the hacked system. To let them know what the vulnerability is and to say, here is how I exploited that vulnerability. You need to address this. I think that's the responsible thing to do. It's also fair to, I think, to, to say that there is a vulnerability, that you found a vulnerability, not to say what the vulnerability is necessarily or how you exploited it, mm-hmm. but that one does exist because then it creates the incentive on the part of the, the person in charge to actually address the problem and fix it. I see. So go straight to the source, yeah. not to USA Today or something. Yeah. I mean, go to the source first and then give the source enough time to sit there and at least evaluate what you have said and then go to the press and say, all right, here's the deal. There's mm. there's this problem. And if it's not addressed, then this is what could happen. This is the potential outcome. Uh, and that was, you know, like the heart bleed bug is a great example. You know, this is one of those things where when you discover it, you kind of, I think, have the responsibility to let people know, hey, there's this problem here. Here's how, how how I exploited it. Here's what needs to happen. And then reveal it to everybody because the potential impact is so great. Mm-hmm. But you don't actually unveil how step by step to exploit the vulnerability. That is irresponsible as well. Uh, and that goes from white hat hacking to black hat hacking hacking in my mm-hmm. mind. So uh, I've seen this over and over again in the in the computer world where uh, an operating system comes out and someone or an operating system that's been out forever, someone discovers that there's a vulnerability. And uh, generally speaking, what they do is they alert the operating system, uh, you know, developer. Mm-hmm. And then after a, a, a set amount of time, we'll say, all right, we found a vulnerability. Here's what the vulnerability does. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. But here's what happens if someone exploits it and this company needs to fix it. And that, again, puts that social pressure on the company. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I think that's I think that's a decent compromise between the two principles. Mm-hmm. And it sounds pretty ethical. 
And now we go to now we go to the question that might be on everybody's mind. Yeah. Uh, so wait, guys, Jonathan, Ben, will my car be hacked? Probably not. <laughs> it's true. There's no silver bullet hack, as we've said. And yeah. And with the exception of that dealer fleet, um, you know, as as you point out, uh, someone would have to the whomever would do this to you would have to have a lot of time on their hands. A heck of a lot of book smarts, right? And a lot of motivation. A lot of they would have to have it out for you specifically. You must have done something really awful like to that person. You killed their father. Yeah. They gave up fencing. There's, yeah, let's let's just look at the the plots for Taken one through three. You've done something on those plots right. against Liam Neeson, and he has the reason to hack your car now. Right. The truth of it is, it's just incredibly inconvenient to do so. And if we look at, and I love that you said Taken, but because if you look at all the stuff we've said now for something like this to have to happen, honestly, those would be like action movie problems that yeah. most people uh, hopefully don't have. Yeah, it's the same sort of thing. Like if you if you are flying back on Christmas and you have to go to Nakatomi Plaza, you're probably not going to relive Die Hard. You know, <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it's just it's it's an action movie <laughs> thing, not a real life thing. But, uh, you know, it, it's certainly one of those things that. Awareness is good because we're getting into a more, uh, you know, the trend of, of computers and electronic systems getting getting more advanced in cars is not going to reverse. No. It's going to continue. It's going to evolve. And we're getting closer and closer to autonomous cars. Clearly, when you get to a system where the car itself is taken over, then at least the idea of the possibility of hacking becomes more realistic to people. Keep in mind, the systems we talked about, they can affect a manually controlled car. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're not suggesting that if you have your hands on the wheel, you can prevent this from happening. But I think once you get to the point where you no longer have to have your hands on the wheel, that you're on one of those Google cars that can, that doesn't even have a wheel. Sure. The, the mindset is that, oh, computer is controlling this. Someone could get control of the computer. It just seems like it's more possible in that model, even right. though, even though it may not necessarily be more possible. Mm -hmm. But as we get these cars that communicate more and more uh, with the outside world, then clearly that's something for us to keep in mind. And uh, it also drives home a point that Scott Benjamin and I made in our autonomous cars episode. We talked about how early implementations all imagined that the autonomous car was going to be part of a, a larger autonomous system. Right. Right. You right. were going to have the, the super highway of the future, and that was going to be the infrastructure, and the cars were going to be largely passive. And receive direction from the outside world. Well, in that world, you can definitely imagine a system that takes advantage of that and sends conflicting commands to the cars that are going down the road. But as we've seen this technology mature, it turns out that it's all being self-contained in the vehicle. It's not dependent upon the environment outside the vehicle, which means it's harder to get at that system so that we benefit from that. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I think that because we didn't go in this world where all the cars have to talk to each other and we discovered, no, they don't really need to talk to each other. If they have the sensors to detect each other, that's enough. They don't actually have to have two-way communication. Well, then you start cutting down on those vectors we were talking about. Mm -hmm. So just the way the technology has matured, which I don't think has anything necessarily to do with security, benefits us in a security way. I see what you're saying. Yeah, and... To be completely candid, we know that we are on the course of a, a 
very, very swift uh, evolution, not revolution, because the progress made in Mm. automotive science in uh, just electronic communication means that uh, the cars children born today drive are going to be radically different. They might not be driving. Yeah, they, that's that's what I'm getting at, man. They yeah. may just not be driving. Yeah, Henrik Christensen over at Georgia Tech made the prediction on one of my episodes of Forward Thinking mm-hmm. that children born today will never have to drive a car. Wow. Because the cars of their generation will all be like at least a car that you you could buy a car uh, once they reach the driving age that does all the driving for you. And, uh, and it, it's, that's one of those things that's going to require a lot of changes, not just in technology, but in policies. Yeah. Um, and, and there are a lot of important questions that you have to answer. Personally, I think that most technologies are going to be able to behave more responsibly than people do. But that's because, you know, I have a lot of faith in the reaction time of a computer compared to the reaction time of a human being. Yeah. I've seen, I mean, look, I've played those games and those computer bots. <laughs> Just they cheat, man. They are cheap. <laughs> they they juggle you. It's terrible. But anyway, um, yeah. I mean, this this is one of those things that I'm glad you brought it up. I'm glad that this was a discussion we could have because uh, it's it's certainly an area that people are getting more and more interested in, and there's so little information that the average person has access to, and and we've seen so much in the hacking world as far as computers go, mm-hmm. that it could very quickly escalate into a fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, chaos, right? Because you look and see the kinds of exploits people have made with, like, credit card systems. Sure. You think, well, what if we apply that same sort of exploit system with a car? The mm-hmm. the results could be devastating. Yeah, there was already a, a huge stink uh, that was raised when we, in the United States, there's this mandate that's going to require every car to have the equivalent of a black box that, like you would see on a plane, right? Yeah. Just captures all the data. And there was this huge stink raised about it when it hit the news. Uh, so much of a huge stink that people forgot to do their research and find out that m- the vast majority of U.S. cars have had those for a number of years. Yeah. So it's, I think you're right. Uh, the fear and the uncertainty because we have such a dichotomy when we contemplate the future. Uh, it's dystopic or it's utopian, you know, yeah. or utopic. Yeah. Utopic. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, exactly. We, we tend to see things in the, the, the extreme ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And the truth is we're going to live somewhere in the middle. And if, if we're lucky, it's going to be leaning heavier on the utopia side than the dystopia. And if we're not observant and uh, responsive, it'll definitely be on the second one, dystopia <laughs> rather than utopia. But um, yeah, I think I think it's good to to just you know keep in mind that there are electronic systems in your car. Electronic systems can fail just like any other system. Uh, they can be sabotaged with the right amount of um, uh, vim and vigor and, and elbow grease, but it's probably it's more likely than not, it's never going to happen to you. Like far more likely than not. Um, At least in the current iteration of the way vehicles work, Uh, you're much more likely to uh, encounter something that would be a problem, like a a driver cutting you off in traffic, which happens all the time Uh, and could lead to really disastrous results than you ever would be with someone hacking your car. 
so I'm, I'm glad we could talk about it. Uh, it's really an interesting topic. Ben, people can find your work all over the darn place with How Stuff Works. You are a host of Car Stuff along with Scott Benjamin. You are a host of Stuff They Don't Want You to Know along with Matt Frederick. You are one of the many hosts of Brain Stuff. Along with you. I am also occasionally on Brain Stuff. Uh, are you doing What the Stuff? Yep. We're, uh, we're both on What the Stuff. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know what shows I host anymore, so I have to ask you which ones you do. Ah, uh, yes. Have I missed any? Uh, you, well, no, uh, we're, I think those are most of them. Oh, food science. Oh, food stuff. Yeah. Food stuff. Your food stuff. Okay. Now, folks, I'm going to another, another final little tangent. If you have not watched the How Stuff Works Food Stuff episodes, you have got to do that. And you need to do them in order For because there's thousands of other narrative from one episode to the next. So it, it does actually progress. And you'll also see occasionally other people from How Stuff Works pop up. Uh, mm-hmm. Joe McCormick, who is one of the, the hosts of Forward Thinking's podcast and uh, also one of the writers for Forward Thinking, he pops up in a recent episode and they are informative and they really exercise the comedic chops of Mr. Ben Bolin and oh, Miss Kristen Conger, both of whom are brilliant improvisers. So you've got to treat yourself and go check out the food stuff episodes. They're fantastic. Wow. That's high. That's a high praise. All right. Setting the well, bar high. I'm, it's, I'm buttering you up so that you put me on the show. <laughs> yeah. I want to be on an episode. Oh, man. Uh, but yeah. I'll have to come up with whatever the topic will be. But anyway, guys, uh, check out those shows. Remember, you can get in touch with Tech Stuff. Let us know any suggestions you might have for future episodes. Maybe there's another guest that you want to have back. Maybe maybe you're thinking, hey, we got to have Ben back on the show as soon as possible. Let me know. Send me an email. My address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Facebook. Twitter or Tumblr. The handle at all three is Tech Stuff HSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon.